0: Hey guys, Million here. A quick note to remind you that you can receive a text message update whenever a new episode drops. Text DF360, all one word, DF360, to 855-529-0759, and you'll receive a text message alert first when a new podcast episode is released. The service is free, but standard messaging rates from your provider may apply. You can opt out anytime. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. And Dominion Fire 360 is on, my friends. Million here with you, M-I-L-L-I-A-N, your ministry provocateur, iconoclast, firebrand, and the resident heretic here at Dominion Fire. It is a pleasure to have you here joining me for this very special episode that I have been looking forward to for quite some time. Now, my guest today has quite the story to tell, and I definitely wanted to hear his side of some events that have transpired and some things that, that are in process that he's working through right now. And you may have seen him before as a, a very prolific author, some TV appearances, as well as had his own uh, academy for a while. Joining me today is Dr. Professor Jonathan Welton. John, how are you today? Hey, Millie. Yeah, I'm
1: doing great. Thrilled to be here with you.
0: Well, it's awesome. You had, uh, you've had quite the experience from uh, what I've read and heard. Is, uh, is that true? Uh, that story checks out. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a, a little bit of an understatement, I, I seem to say the least. John, where are you uh, right about? You're in New York area, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Well, we actually moved around December
1: of 2021. And so we made it down to the Carolinas. We live right across the border in South Carolina, but we're we're right on the line there. And we we really wanted to be among a community of friends that are down here and participate in local church. And we uprooted and moved. And yeah, we've been down here six, seven eight months, something like that. And just, just loving it. It's been, I mean, every day we get up and we have our coffee and look out the window and are like, I can't believe we we live here. This is incredible. (laughs) We're so thankful. We made it. We made it out. We consider ourselves New York State refugees. So. (laughs) Nice.
0: Understood. Listeners, you may remember John from the Heal the Sick podcast. He was one of our early guests. And I had initially learned about John and his work from a book that he wrote called School of the Seers. And he was uh, on a Sid Roth appearance as well, which is where I sort of found out more about what he did. And so we, you know, we made a connection we talked a little bit. He was on our podcast and, uh, in the time since then, John, you've written a bunch of books. You've done a lot of uh, itinerant ministry, ministry, a lot of traveling around and all that. But for people that may not fully know your story and your history and all that, would you just give us a quick rundown of your background experience and sort of bring us up to uh, the events in question?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's see. If I go back, I'm, I'm 39 years old now. And in my early 20s, I went on a uh, trip with Randy Clark. To Brazil and traveled with them for a month doing major crusades down there and saw all kinds of stuff that just rocked my world incredible miracles, deliverances, just wild stuff. And I, I ended up writing about that in School of the Sears. And that was my first book. And I got invited to go on Sid Roth's show, which I'd never heard of Sid Roth at the time. I, I just don't watch any Christian television. And so I was really surprised with how a huge response was to the book and immediately began traveling and speaking and just tremendous response to that book. And that, that first book actually took me mm, probably close to five five or six years to write. Around the time the book came out, I got ordained under Randy Clark's ministry and Patricia King was there and she was part of the uh, ordination And she came over and laid hands on me and prophesied that you're being ordained as an author, which was just more of a prophetic word, not something official on paper. But she declared this word about books are going to flow out of you. And it went from that first book taking five to six years to write to having books come out about every six months at that point. And we're talking incredibly fast pace of, of books and revelation and knowledge. That was just flowing, and so my style, even with the writing, is that I would typically pick a topic like uh, like the end times or covenant, new covenant, old covenant, fivefold ministry, and I would just kind of devour any book on that topic. So I, I can think of the, the fivefold ministry. I wrote a book called Equipping the Equippers, and I I read the fifty or so books that were out at the time on fivefold ministry. And then I write I write from trying to take the next step of what people have not addressed yet in those books. So my style has always been trying to push, push the church the next step. How do we go a little bit further than where we're at? Not regurgitate, not stay in the same place, but really to pioneer. And so always trying to be on the, the front edge of things. I, I was traveling, I was writing, I was speaking. I was on the road about 150 days out of the year. And uh, I did that from oh 25 years old until 35 years old, and or maybe even a little bit before 25. So about a decade there that I was, I was traveling, I realized near the end of it, I started counting it up in my brain that I was gone about three, three and a half years out of that decade. It was just burning burning me down to a nub and having a young young family right now my I have a three daughters I have a nine year old a six year old a three year old and my wife and I have been married eighteen years, so we spent that that first ten years or so without kids just traveling doing ministry and really going for it hardcore and then around thirty years old, I got this idea and it was kind of. This was nine years ago. This was before e-courses really became. Now it's kind of ubiquitous. Like everybody's got an e-course on everything. And so at that time, I I decided, oh, yeah, I think I have this idea. What if we had a Bible school that was online? And it was still a pretty pretty edgy idea at the time. I thought maybe maybe if I'm lucky, I'll have like 50 students. And we launched it that first year, and we had. think it was about 500 students sign up and it was an overnight shocking success but but also overwhelming because I was going from I am an itinerant with a part-time administrator to now I have to build a structure around this thing and I got a you know I think I hired seven staff members that first year you know had to start learning about the business side of things very quickly to build a structure that would make that work. That was 2013 when the school launched and we named it Welton Academy. There was a little irony in that because I was, I was using my last name, but it's also the name of the Academy from Dead Poets Society, which very few people have picked up on that, but it it was just a, a subtle, like kind of a little bit of humor in there and something from my own childhood of a movie I loved and, captain my captain so <laughs> nice I, nice I, yeah so there's a little little shout out in there but yeah we went with Welton Academy and I was homeschooled growing up so it's the extra irony my actual uh, diploma says Welton Academy on it as well from high school so it was kind of an ongoing theme it seems inevitable at some point so yeah we did Welton Academy and from 2013 until 2018 had about 2,600 students go through the school. It was just absolutely thriving, lots and lots of relationships and connections with other leaders, many other leaders of movements that were involved and engaged. And really some of the strong points with it were a theology that I had developed in my research and study called Better Covenant Theology, which really helped explain explain the Bible through a covenant understanding as far as the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the whole concept of the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, how we actually read the scripture through these these different lenses, because it's very difficult to pick up the Bible and read some of these horrendous stories in the Old Testament and think, is this the same father that is the father of Jesus? and it is, but you have to read it in the context of those covenants. That initial course that we created was understanding the whole Bible, a 20-week course that I put together, that really drove a lot of the uh, the movement of what we were doing. There was all of all of this activity. There's books. There's travel. There's a school. There's everything is thriving. Lots of staff members, and then around 2017 things started to come apart at the edges. And I didn't have, at the time, I had very little self-awareness. And so my staff sat me down. They all worked remotely, but they sat me down on a Zoom call at the end of 2017. And they brought up a few issues and said, you know, you don't seem like you're okay. There's been some ways that you've interacted with us that has led us to feel uncomfortable. We just want to address these with you. And I was I owned it. I was very apologetic, made them feel heard. But inside my brain, I had no no understanding of how I was actually making them feel. I was not actually empathizing with what they were experiencing. And nothing was going to change. (laughs) And I didn't intentionally not change. I just, I had no place for what they were actually telling me. And the irony, I look back, I'm like, that sucks. Because I had a team who really loved me and we had amazing things going on and they were trying to get through to me and they even sat down and tried to confront me and it didn't work. It is a sad, sad moment right there.
0: What I remember around that time, because I I did the first year at Welton Academy. I started in on the second, then I had to stop for a period. And when did uh, I, another seminal moment, I guess, from, as from watching everything was when the book Raptureless really started to hit. So when did that come out? Uh,
1: that actually came out in 2013, which is around the same time the school launched. So the the book was out at the same time. I was writing it initially as it was originally a series of blogs. And they were in response because people were getting so whipped up about the Mayan calendar in 2012. And so all throughout 2012, I was publishing the law and just taking apart, like, here's what the Antichrist actually is. Here's what the prince in Daniel chapter 9 actually is. Here's what the beast of Revelation actually is. And so I was unpacking that throughout 2012. And then in 2013, I published it as a book. At that time, there was a lot of stir with that. But it really uh, came out about the same time as the school did.
0: Because I remember there was it was sort of like School of the Seers hit. And then that was like a lot of motion and activity. Then I remember Raptureless hitting and I'm like, OK, you're just knocking one. Then Welton Academy, I'm like, OK, this is getting interesting. now. <laughs> and I, the end times discussion is, man, I can't believe how fired up people get about that. It's it's like one of those just sacred cows with a lot of people. And it is wild. Because you just presented a whole different view, and, and I actually really embraced that view. I kind of like that very, very much, answered a lot of questions I had, so I'm I'm very much sort of in that camp. But as things were developing further, I guess it was around that time when I, I had stopped Welton Academy when the second year was developed, and then I I wasn't really, I was caught up in something else, and I, after a while, I, I said, well, I wonder what John's up to, I haven't heard anything in a while. And so... At the end of seventeen, you were going through this period with your staff, and you were having issues, and a lot of stuff was piling on. And now we're pivoting into what you call the crash, or however you want to refer to it. But as I guess everything was starting to come to a head, and I guess it was just the the pressure, and then the things with the staff. So, as uh, much as you want to share, or you're comfortable with, what happened? Like, give us your side of everything, please. For anyone who wants like
1: in depth, I went in depth on the first four episodes of my podcast had just started recently. So I I unpack in great detail. But I won't go into every detail like I did there because uh, you know, this isn't a Joe Rogan four hour podcast. <laughs> so, well it can be. If I mean, you want we can It can be if you want, <laughs> but you know, I go get my pajamas on here. But uh, <laughs> so my politely abridged version is that so they confronted me as a team at the end of twenty seventeen. When I say the crash, I'm referring to September 2018, so pretty much a year later. And over the course of that year, there was multiple conversations. And so they kept bringing back the same issues because nothing was changing. I wasn't dealing with the stuff. I wasn't addressing stuff. And it was part of it. Now, I, I have you ever heard of this book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Robert Glover?
0: it's familiar to me yes okay
1: so this is a fantastic book i recommend it for any male person i know you know that's confusing nowadays but anybody born with the male part should read this book and it is it is really a deep dive into what he calls nice guy syndrome and i i think that probably 98% of of Christian men in ministry are suffering with a certain level of this. And I was massively into the nice guy syndrome. And it's it's really on the outside, you're putting up a front, a mask, and yet inside, you are loaded with insecurities. And those insecurities lead to neediness that lead to taking advantage of people's trust and seeking everybody's approval and applause and praise and overstepping boundaries with affection and just basically I know in the the psychology world they talk about this as like being like a hungry ghost, like you're kinda hollow inside and you're just starving to death emotionally. And so you're you're feeding on all the people around you. And so that was how I how I felt and I was doing ministry, and yet nothing was ever enough. The attention, the praise, the affection, the connection, the the applause, it was always going after the next thing because I have this big gaping wound that I hadn't taken care of emotionally, and so it just was driving all this behavior. And so I'm being... You know, addressed and confronted through the whole year. And by the time it got to the end of, oh, it was September 18th, 2018, it had reached such a boiling point that I had been actually invited, Danny Silk, to be a part of the the team that was walking with me as far as my leadership team. And he had to send out a letter announcing to the school we're closing the school, we're shutting down the ministry, Jonathan stepping out of ministry. He's gonna go hopefully fix his life and his marriage and his family you know it was odd because some some people have taken that like Danny wrote this letter blasted Jonathan and then walked off well that's not true at all now I I disappeared from the public eye for over three years but at that time Danny actually began to meet with my wife and I every week I mean at the beginning it was two hours every single week. And he would show up and show up and show up and have Zoom calls with us and help us really walk through a lot of stuff. And it's been odd because there there was really two ways to the crash because there was the initial shutting down of the whole public ministry. And at that time, even my former staff, my former board members, they had some hope. There was some hope that maybe Jonathan would get his head on straight and, you know, get it, get, get his head on straight and own things, be responsible, apologize, clean this mess up. And by March of 2020, that hope was just gone because of a lot of different events. And I can back up and talk about that a little bit. But by March of 2020, they sent out another letter saying, Jonathan has basically kept his marriage together but he's not made any progress. So after two years there was an update saying, Nope, he's really not he's really not gotten anywhere here. So very, very discouraging and yet very accurate. I mean it was a letter in September twenty eighteen was exactly the slap that I needed, but it also the I didn't find the right tools that I needed at that time to really make the changes. And then March 2020, I got my senior pastor who is a now a a former best friend of mine. He had to kick me out of the church because that was toxic in the local church environment. He was also on the board and the board sent out an update letter saying Jonathan has not made progress. He's not doing great. And some former staff members started writing blogs and just putting out details of their experience of me. It was a avalanche of pushback really felt like here's a second wave of a big slap, and that one still actually didn't didn't cause the effect that was needed either, but what it did do is it pushed my wife to a place of waking up where she reached out and she got herself a psychologist to begin to talk with and he he made it very clear after a couple months of of talking things through with her and i I know I hadn't met with him but he had said to her, I've met with men like your husband for 40 years, and I've never seen any of them change. And so it was it was a wake-up call for her to really look at this in black and white terms. of, I am married to a narcissist, and he is the nicest guy on the surface to everybody outside, but he's loaded with insecurities. He's constantly defensive. He lies. He manipulates. And he's just miserable to be with. And so this wake up call for her led to around the end of April 2020, a second separation. Now, we separated after the first crash for about three months. You know, just the trauma of our whole life crashing into the wall. We needed that time apart to really kind of deal with our emotions. And then. The second one, though, was much more of a, I don't believe you've changed. I don't believe you can change or will change. And we will probably have to get divorced because I can't deal with this anymore. That kind of separation. At that point, I had done everything I knew of. I'd been meeting with Danny. I had gone and uh, found an inner healing counselor and worked with him five days a week for months on end. I had gone to professional counseling. I had read all the books, watched all the YouTubes, everything you could get, I could get my hands on about narcissism, trying to understand how do I deal with this? Where did it come from? All of that. And it just wasn't, it wasn't going in any productive direction. So this was April 2020. COVID lockdowns were full on and. We're stuck home together all the time. Yeah, we reached our breaking point. So she says to me, either you move out or I move out. And the next morning, I packed up all my stuff and drove across town to stay at my parents' house. I didn't know if I'd ever be back home. There was no time frame for that. It was really like, no, I think we're done. And so at that point, I I was kind of at the end of my rope. I really had uh, felt like I exhausted all my options. But one of the things I did, and this is this was, you know, how Facebook, they got their algorithm, you know, they're always watching. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I always watch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always so, watching was Oh man. My feed just loaded up with all these uh, men's programs. You know, there's, there's, there's <laughs> yeah, yeah. a bunch of them. And so, you know, the, the hilariousness of that. So I, I actually, you know, signed up for all the free stuff from them. Just kind of just ch- check them out. There's rabbi so-and-so and there's men on fire and way of the warrior, whatever club or, you know, there's all these <laughs> things. And so I'm I'm getting all this in my inbox and I'm like, all right, like let's let's check this out. But there was one that he would send out these daily videos and they were like three minutes, four minutes long. And it was like, man, this is brilliant. It was this program called the bulletproof husband. And I had been watching these, these free videos every day for probably two months at this point. And so when she kicked me out, I was like, I'm signing up for that thing immediately. And I, <laughs> I didn't even know all of what I was signing up for, but I knew like, here's this, here's a secular program. I don't know anything about it. I found it through Facebook and. Yet there was enough trust because I've been watching the free content from them for a while and they, they sure do seem to know what they're talking about. So I went for it. I signed up. I signed up for the bulletproofhusband.com program, started implementing everything that they taught. And it was, I mean, they have, they have group Zoom calls every, every week. There's probably nine hours of Zoom calls every week. There's, there's videos that you watch there's men that you speak with and I just went in uh you know deep dive and so within a couple weeks Karen was already saying in our our meetings with Danny uh Danny Silk like I'm seeing changes that I've been waiting for for two plus years or technically like 16 years at that point (laughs) and uh and yet of course she doesn't she doesn't trust these are going to stick around because they're brand new changes and the trust has to rebuild and so forth. I just kept working it, just kept working the program and seeing trust regrow. I think of it like this, like I had at that point, like like there's guys I talk with, I, I talk with men all the time now. This is a lot of what I do. And I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, how much he's going through this rough marriage stuff. And I said, How much does your wife trust you? And he said, Oh, she didn't trust me at all. Actually, worse than that. Because if trust is a currency and she's the bank holder, how much trust are you indebted right now? And he's like, Oh, like a million dollars. Like, yeah. If like, you could get back to zero, you'd be thrilled. He's like, Yeah, absolutely. One of these con that's one of the concepts from the program is that you actually trust, if you think of it like a currency, you can get yourself indebted. There's things you could do to make deposits and there's things you can do to make withdrawals. And so I had basically overdrafted my trust account by millions of dollars, both with my wife and my extended friends and workers and students and all these different places that I had lost trust. I had gone from a place of I think of it like a ten thousand gallon swimming pool that I'm swimming around in just an overflow of trust. And then I drain the whole thing out. And it it was it was like everyone standing around me looking going, are You out of your mind? Like what are you doing? You know, that that trust, regrowing trust takes a long time, but it takes a lot less time when you actually are doing the right stuff. That same psychologist was meeting with my wife weekly who said, I, I've never seen someone like your husband change. Within three months, so we're talking 90 days in the Bulletproof Husband program, he says to, to my wife, he says, I, I, your husband has done everything I didn't expect him to do. And I actually would encourage you because she was pondering at that point, inviting me home and restoring the relationship. And he's like, I actually think you're on the right track. I think maybe you should. And that whatever he's doing, whatever they're doing over there at that program, it's like a miracle. <laughs> and so I came home. I was home by August 1st of 2020, and we began to rebuild our life and our marriage. And after 16 years of we we're on this kind of hamster wheel of anxiety that would just sort of hang in the air from one day, you know, she says something, I get triggered, I argue, I get defensive, and then you have a couple days that are kind of walking on eggshells, and then it calms down and quiets down a bit more. And then that cycle revolves again. And it was basically an argument every week and then a de escalation and then another argument. And it never made progress. And we never got out of that cycle for years. And so and and if that's how it was at my inner core of the marriage, it was carrying over into other areas. So if somebody needed to address something with me regarding ministry, regarding work, regarding the business side of things, it was all the same kind of passive, aggressive, manipulative interaction. This led to the work in the program actually shifting it. I mean it was I remember one of the first moments that I I could see the trust starting to register in her eyes. She asked me to come over during early in the separation, first couple of weeks of separation. I asked me to come over and do something at the house. And I was, I was helping, helping around the house with different projects. And she, she says to me, she comes out and looks at what I'm doing and like, Oh, this is great. You know, thank you so much. And I said, you know, can I, uh, and share something with you. I just have been realizing since I've been working on this program, but yeah, and I could tell she is all defense. You know, just not has no idea she about to get some big argument. Am I about to be a jerk or whatever? And I said, you know, I realized I I have accused you of being controlling for all these years because I was projecting on you all of my own issues from my own childhood and how that filter had just had just been layered over you, and you've never been controlling. And it was, you know, she teared up, she thanked me, and I could tell in that moment, like, oh my gosh, this, this is the kind of responsibility that they're teaching me in this program, and this is actually rebuilding trust. And I had been flailing and found, floundering around for the last, two plus years, trying to make forward progress and not making any. The real challenge of stepping up into responsibility, taking ownership and accountability and integrity, some of these, these pieces that had been missing in my life, began to quickly rebuild that trust. Yeah, that was the summer of 2020. By the fall of 2021, the leadership team at the Bulletproof Husband uh said you know we're putting together our first round of coaches that were training and we would love to invite you to be in our coach training program so i got put in with 19 other guys to go through that first round of training uh i actually became the first certified coach in the program and the training program was a year and a half at the end of it they they offered to me the opportunity to write the manuscript Based on their material. And so I am at the final, final stages of the production of a book called The Bulletproof Husband. And it's co authored with the the three creators of the program. And it will be a very controversial book about marriage and masculinity. You're going to write something
0: controversial, is what you're telling me? You
1: know, I seem like the guy for the job. So your track record's a little. uh... I'm just saying <laughs> I know normally I'm much more like meringue pudding, but, you know, here I figured it
0: was time for me
1: to say something.
0: <laughs> time to really rock the boat at this point. Now, I have a whole bunch of questions here. Then let's pause I there know, for I a second. This this is great. Now, this is great, man. I love this. <laughs> now, for people, listeners out there, for you guys that have followed me for a while, people know that I actually have a degree in psychology. That was my initial study when I was in school. So I've carried that throughout my whole life. I love the emotional aspect, the figuring out the humans. I love all this kind of stuff. So this fascinates me a lot. One thing that uh, you've initially started with, and I can so relate to this, you were talking about being the hungry ghost and just being, you know, Mr. Nice guy. Someone like me in ministry is, I'm not even sure how I'm in ministry because people have said to me, million, are you going to start a church? And I'm like, I will absolutely not start a church. No, I will not. Why not? Because I'm not the kind of guy that smiles and shake hands and welcomes, welcomes everybody. I'm not that guy. <laughs> I'm a very <laughs> like,
1: <not> Reverend <laughs> no, I
0: am. I'm, I'm, I'm like a moody introverted. I I, I don't know. I'm like just that kind of guy. And I'm just like, my, I mean, my, my intentions are good. Like, you know, I, I try to be good hearted about it. I'm just not that kind of guy. And it's funny because over the years, as I've done YouTube videos and as I've taught at places and you've spoken in some churches, You know, that imposter syndrome fits in because you're up on the stage or you're on a live call and you're like, what am I doing here? Is anybody believing this crap? (laughs) You know, it's like you question yourself. And so it really interested me is that as you were mentioning what was starting to happen and all the things you were doing, a lot of people look at you when you're in at the center of the focus and they're like, Well, you know, you're you're a minister. You're not supposed to have flaws. You're not supposed to get divorced. You're supposed to be, you know, nice. You're not supposed to be an introvert that doesn't like to talk to people. It's like, it's it, ministry is such a funny thing that way because you know i remember when i was the first churched i got saved in the the pastor and his wife the the wife would always tell me she goes you know he's just a man like everybody else he's got his flaws and you know you put a people up on pedestals and it's like my god you, you you know it's it's hard to get a hold of that sometimes so i completely understand that whole imposterish and just Insecure. That's a crazy thing because I, I still feel I'm mean, here on a podcast going. Why am I doing this? <laughs> I get you, man. It's it's a hard thing. So when all this was happening, you you mentioned that you went with your parents. How were your parents and extended family towards you as all this was happening? Because you mentioned mentioned some childhood hurts. Like I would assume that there was a tie in there. Like were they like responsible? Were they cool? Like how did your parents react? Oof, well. That's a, that's a whole side
1: story. I will definitely go down with you.
0: Podcast part two. <laughs>
1: let's, let's, well, let's let's back up for a second. You're talking about imposter syndrome. I think one of the things that was so eye-opening for me was the concept of spiritual bypassing. Now, I don't know if that has come up in your psychology studies. It's becoming a more popular term, but it really is the idea that instead of dealing with your your issues, you just become more spiritual. And so for example, let's say you're four hundred pounds. Well, instead of actually getting a physical trainer and changing your diet, you just declare the scriptures that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and, you know, you declare blessings of your Snickers bars and you know, you're gonna lose that weight miraculously. And you do you become more spiritual and you ignore what it actually takes to deal with that area of your life. And that could be physical fitness, it could be your finances. People do this all the time with their finances. Instead of actually handling them correctly, they just, maybe I'm going to tithe and cross my fingers and treat the offering like a wishing well, and maybe God will send me checks in the mail or something. And that, that bypassing spiritually is what really messed me up, was I was not dealing with my emotional life. And even even the approaches I had taken through say inner healing, for example, there's a lot of inner healing that can be spiritual bypassing where we're gonna go into a memory, we're gonna invite Jesus into the memory, we're gonna change the memory, we're gonna find a lie, find the truth. And it's all this mental gymnastics and manipulation when really there's emotional work that has to be done. And so that was one of the big, the big insights for, for me in the program is that men and women process things differently, that the, the feminine processes usually through the verbal, through speaking and talking through the emotion of an experience they had or a hurt that they had and feeling heard and understood. Whereas the masculine has to physically emote the feelings that got suppressed in whatever, say the trauma, the experience, the childhood. And that could be crying, screaming, raging, punching a punching bag and letting it out, but doing that in a responsible space and actually letting out the suppressed hurt. And so that, uh, Moving away from spiritual bypassing, where you have you're kind of ignoring the emotional realm, to really embracing the emotions and dealing with them, caused a huge shift. So now, when my wife would say something, it wasn't immediately poking some trigger because that suppressed hurt had actually been let out and dealt with, and not through mental gymnastics and in memory work, but through actually letting out the suppressed hurts and emotions and feelings that were there, it moved from absolutely imposter syndrome, nice guy syndrome, all of that covert narcissist to being able to show up authentically and integrate it and actually connect it with myself like that. That process, yes, it was very it was very challenging personally but it was also very challenging for my family. I have to be careful with what I say and what I don't say because there there was some very shady illegal stuff going on in my family and I have spoken about some of it publicly and got letters from lawyers saying you can't talk about this or we'll sue you. So I'm I'm cautious with what I do say, but there's a lot of mental illness in my family of origin. And we had to actually, in the summer of 2020, one of the big signs to my wife's psychologist that I was getting healthy was the fact that I put up strong boundaries to my immediate family. And he said that that's clear indication. He's seeing the issues and he's willing to draw these lines. And the, the final straw was that they spent that summer calling CPS uh, Child Protective Services and making up allegation after allegation to harass my wife and I. And they admitted that actually in court. I mean, it's always anonymous, but they they were in court for my brother's divorce. And one of my extended family was on the stand and actually said, yeah, we've been calling and, and making these claims. And so it's like, oh, well, I we knew it, but now it's under oath. So I have, uh, at that point, had to draw the line that you you are endangering my family, so we are done. And it's been brutal. I haven't spoken to any member of my family except for some minor messaging with my father here and there. It's so broken and dysfunctional. I, I, I literally heard that my, my mom was in the hospital recently and actually, coded, died, and they revived her three three times. So she's literally on the uh, edge of death. But I heard that from a friend of a friend because there's no communication. You know, I think I think when she does pass or any anything else happens in my family, nobody's even going to tell me. So it it's really messed up. You're on your own. But <laughs> I'm on my own, and I'm moving forward in health. My wife and I and our kids are are doing fantastic, and. And yet there is that sadness that's like, we don't have, they don't have their cousins, they don't have their grandparents, they don't have, you know, we don't, we don't have that connection anymore. But at the same time, it was a dangerous, toxic, abusive situation. So yeah, we've just had to step away.
0: It's good that you were able to track that down and bring it back to, you know, where the source of it was. And it, it makes a lot of sense. When we were in counseling training back in the day when I was in the psychology world, what they would always start us with is where you got to find someone, some where someone hits the bottom. And then once they officially hit their bottom, you work for raising the bottom because they're going to hit it again. So you just raise the bottom up. So when they hit, they fall, but not as hard. Right. And so for you, when you were going through this, like the crash or all these different things, was there a specific event or something that you count as your official rock bottom this is it is there like a, a specific moment or something
1: yeah i processed it in the concept of like a series of slaps and <laughs> the the last one was the one that would be probably the rock bottom but it you know, the, the first big slap was the the public humiliation crash of 2018 and then there was the second wave of slaps being kicked out of church in march 2020 having the board send out a follow up letter, having former staff members write their blog. And then the last one really of my wife saying, I I I don't think I can do this marriage anymore. And that was the that was the one that finally hit me hard enough. And even then though, it wasn't the the slap didn't fix me. It gave me the leverage. But the tools that I found in the program Actually gave me the tools to start rebuilding myself and doing the things I needed to do to be in integrity to become integrated to be accountable to be responsible and those were the things that I think if I had found those earlier i don 't know if the leverage was enough for me to do the work, but the leverage was massively at its its height when when Karen drew the line and said the marriage was was done and that was the that was the rock bottom for me because for me it was especially how this was going to impact my three daughters and that was the the real the real devastation there was oh i now these these girls are gonna have to grow up in a in a broken home and that was the leverage that that hit for
0: me oh, that's a killer man to even think about that you know, it's, it's so prevalent you see the fallout from, it and it's like, oh man, seriously,
1: <laughs> gotta be kidding me. Yeah.
0: I get you. Yeah. We try
1: to act like it's normal, but it, it, it it's just not harm every time.
0: Furthermore on that topic, as we uh, get into that, you were mentioned about the term narcissism. Now that was something that lately you're starting to hear a lot of this. And over the years, it was one of those things I remember it was in like, it was the DSM four R the diagnostic manual for, you know, the psychiatry world. When, we would go through that and it was like you'd see these weird diagnoses and narcissism was one of them. And I'm like, OK. And so the thing that I my view of it, my opinion, and you can expound on this further, that narcissism is an interesting situation because when it gets to a certain degree, when it becomes clinical, that's when it's a problem. And I say that because every human is narcissist to a degree. It's like a spectrum. And if you're way down the zero end, it's you know not a big deal. But when you start reaching a level where it gets clinical and it becomes diagnosable, now we got a situation. So everyone is basically narcissist. Everybody's basically self-centered. It's just to what degree you are. And if you just keep it down and under control, you're good. But it sounds like as you were going through this and as you were starting to get help, I, what I thought was interesting, I thought it was very profound. It seems like everybody that you turned to was saying to you, ah, you're hopeless, we can't help you. It, it's like people were already like, defeating you and counting you out before they even gave you a chance to do it is what it sounds like to me. So it's like, it feels like everybody wrote you off as, as you were trying to get into these programs. So how did you come to know about this specific narcissism, quote unquote, and based on what I was saying about, you know, spectrum and where you fall, can you give us some insight into that and, you know, just kind of how you felt going through that?
1: I love this conversation topic because it's something the church is not aware of and yet it's become so pop culture. And you're right, it's definitely gotten to the point now in our culture where you just write somebody off. Like, oh, you have that, it's incurable. We we don't even they don't even train therapists how to deal with it anymore. They literally encourage people not to take them as clients because they don't they don't change. And I read through a lot of the official psychology literature on the topic and it's It's very hopeless, and and yet here we are as the church. We have lots of narcissists. We don't know what to do with them, and we actually are supposed to have hope for everybody and the ability to believe in repentance and change and have powerful tools to see narcissists like the Apostle Paul who are running around killing Christians to transform into the man who writes two-thirds of the New Testament. And yet nowadays we're just like, "Oh, nope, narcissist gone, we don't believe in you, we don't believe you could possibly change and it's uh yeah, it's very hopeless and it's it's really it's really a, a shame to the church that the, that that's how weak our understanding of the gospel is. How do we actually apply some of these tools? what can actually help somebody change? I think one of the most insightful pictures and it's in line with what you're saying, if you think of it like a you know, sliding scale, scale one to ten, and it, you start out as a baby, you're a little infant, and you're crying and screaming at three in the morning. You do not care about your parents' sleep.
0: You do not care about not anybody one around you. Not bit. <laughs> you're
1: no. 100% self-absorbed.
0: The Freudians would call that id, the id ego, and super. That is all id in babies. There you go, hundred percent.
1: And so there you are. And I'm going to say that let's say that you're a zero on the scale. You are a hundred percent narcissistic, completely self absorbed infant. But then you begin to learn and grow, and you get older, and you learn how to share, and you're moving up the scale. Now maybe you're a three, maybe a four. Now maybe at the far end of the scale you have. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, and you have, you know, there are 10, let's say. And the average person gets up in their life to be an eight of of selfless and connected and integrated and all of that. But somewhere along the line, in the narcissist's childhood, they have something that happens and they get stuck at a lower number. And so that person in their childhood wounding trauma that whatever they experienced and internalized, they got stuck at maybe a four, maybe a five on the scale. And so then the six, sevens, eights are looking at them like, you, you're you a monster. And it's like, no, actually, you're a stuck child in an adult body. And if we can get into those suppressed hurts and feelings and actually emote them and integrate them, you can move up the scale. And you can move up to a six seven eight nine, and yet that's the that's the hard emotional work that is not typically being done for narcissists and especially narcissistic men. It just is kind of thought of as as hopeless. The irony is funny because i I remember reading an article on psychology today, and they they it was a hypothetical argument of if. A narcissist were ever to get healed, here's the work that he would have to have actually done. And then you look at the article, and it was everything that they do in the Bulletproof Us. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Well, that's that's exactly the journey right there, and it's totally possible. And you know, but it it always starts with like you said, rock bottom, or we call it a slap. It always starts with that that slap that is the wake-up call. You know, you could be the 400-pound man and you think you're fine until the day you have a massive heart attack. And you go, I have got to change. And then and then you lose 200 pounds. And that's,
0: that's the work. My favorite psychologist today is, I'm sure you know, Jordan Peterson. And I listened to him the other day and he, he made an amazing point. He says, the other day I was, he was arguing with somebody in his whole cultural thing that he does. He says, I was literally arguing with the three-year-old. And they were like 22 or whatever it was. He goes, you don't understand. It says people get, they used to call it arrested development. Like you would just stop at a certain age. He goes, they got to three, never got past whatever emotional thing they were. And they basically stayed as three-year-olds. So modern day when they're adults and they don't get what they want, they act like a three-year-old and throw tantrums and all. And I was like, wow, that was pretty profound. Never picked up on that, but there's definitely something to that. And along with narcissism as well. I I, I do subscribe to that theory that everyone is that to a degree. It's for survival in a lot of ways. Same with self-awareness, same with being self-centered. If you're not self, you're a zero self-centered, you're going to die. Something's going to take you out. I mean, it's a survival thing in a lot of ways. But the problem we have is in our culture today, it's very easy to get lost in self-awareness. It's very easy to become narcissistic on social media and all these different things. It's, It's just so easy, especially for guys. So pivoting off of that. I guess what I was kind of curious about is that we were talking a little about the church world, on the spiritual side of stuff. And, and just so I'm clear, bulletproof husband is that a faith based thing or is that more a secular thing? It is definitely secular.
1: It's led by by three different leaders who put it together. They come from different perspectives. One one is a believer, and there's probably about thirty to forty percent of the men in the program have a some sort of a faith background. Lots of different different you have protestants, catholics, mormons, lots of different things. So it's it's very interesting to be a part of it. There's about 800 guys in the program, so it's it's very large. There's lots of lots of background.
0: In the spiritual, churchy, Christian faith sense. Let's kind of get into that a little bit. You mentioned earlier about repentance and change. So have you repented for the home audience who would probably want to know, you need to repent. Have you repented? <laughs> yes.
1: Of many, many things, yeah, and that's i mean it's it's a tricky word, because uh, there's so many different ways to understand that, but repentance bears fruit, and it's clear that the fruit has taken place here, and like I said, with Danny Danny silk he engaged us in the process, so he didn't just blow us up and then walk away, but he walked all the way through the journey, and he did end up releasing another letter which came out in. June of 2021, basically stating like Jonathan has, he's walked this whole journey. He's repented. He's dealt with his issues. The fruit is evident and he's free from this process. And so, so I've actually been free from the restoration process for over a year now. But I, for myself, I really felt like I was, I needed to move from being in like quarantine to being in a sabbatical. And so, being stay-at-home dad, doing some writing, doing some podcasts, putting some stuff out there, I'm I'm turning down speaking engagements regularly. Just saying, nope, I'm I just want to be home, and that's uh, that's where that's where life is at right now.
0: What I guess kind of bothers me in a lot of ways, and you know, anybody in ministry that has any sort of recognition is going to go through this. Now, not that I'm anybody special, but, you know, I've done some stuff over the years, done some videos and teachings and podcasts and all that stuff. You always get the, you know, the heresy hunters that come at you for all kind of different things, which is why I opened my program with, you know, ministry provocateur, iconoclast, firebrand, and resident heretic is I got so used to being called heretic. I just embrace it. I mean, as well, I mean, yesterday's heretics are today's heroes. So let's go with that. And so I said, all right, you're going to call me. I may as well embrace it. But the funny part is about the, I guess, kind of what I was witnessing with what you were going through. A friend of mine a long, long time ago, we would talk about church and he would always say that Christians are the only army that shoots its wounded. And I thought that, wow. And I didn't get it at the time, but as I've gone through it, I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I guess it seems like for whatever reason, we like to elevate people. And then when they have a fall, we like to pile on them even more. It just, just seems to be what people do. As you were doing your Welton Academy clearly you were getting some blowback from that. As you put out Raptureless, clearly you got some blowback from that. And I would imagine that when, you know, the crash hit and everything blew up, I imagine everybody came out of the woodwork to point fingers and say, I was right and you did that. I would imagine it was like an avalanche of people coming at you as well. So as someone who dealt with like, the narcissistic issues or the self-awareness issues or even just insecurities and imposter stuff, when people were coming at you, I guess I find it interesting looking at the big picture is that you were you were on this collision course anyway. Then the lockdowns came, which meant you had no choice. You were going into exile one way or another, whether you liked or not, Right. <laughs> and then, you know, then the crash happens and then it's not always the crash. It's always the after effects of it that really pile on. So I'm kind of curious your perspective. You were getting a lot of crap from people before. But after this happened and, you know, it went very, very public and everybody was piling on. How did you get through that? How'd you deal with it? And where are you now with all that?
1: I guess one of the things I I, I jokingly say quite often is I've I've been hated for a long time for a lot of different reasons. <laughs> and it's like the reasons change. The reasons could be I write School of the Sears and you're talking about angelic activity in the modern church. Oh, well, you know, that's You know, we don't believe in that, or we don't want to hear about that, or now you're worshiping angels, or you know, whatever crazy accusations people want to make up, and then you write rapture and oh, you're upsetting people about eschatology, and this is not of importance and value, and you're a heretic, and where'd you get all this silliness? And then you move to uh, normal Christianity, and oh, you believe in women in ministry? Oh my gosh! And every book has had a wave of critics and haters and all of that, and all right, I've been hated for a lot of things. Majority of them over the years has been because of different teaching, like one wave of teaching, then another wave, and now I'm hated for this, and now I'm hated for that. There was always a, uh, they couldn't do the ad hominem argument of just picking apart, well, you know, John has bad character because it wasn't evident because I was amazing at being fake. I had such a good thought. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I kept it so perfect and all. And so you could you could not like my theology, but you couldn't pick apart like, okay, he's still on his first marriage. He seems to have a good reputation in his local church. He hasn't had some big scandal yet. He hasn't like stolen the finances or slept with the secretary. And it had never been that. So that was easier. I think it, it's such a different feeling, though, when it's, no, you legitimately, your character sucks, and now it's being put on blast for the world. And it was really, at the same time as the Me Too movement was at its peak. And so I got really, you know, I got guys who are all defensive of me, who are like, you know, oh, man, you're being Me Tooed. But then I'm like, well, that's a victim mindset. No, I actually was gener- you know, an actual asshole. Like I was really I actually did this stuff and I mistreated people. And I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and defend myself here. It was a mess. And you definitely get to see where people's hearts are at. I said to my wife the other day, because I've started to get some emails from people who haven't reached out in four years. And they're like, hey, we've been thinking of you. I hope you're doing well. You know, I never, I never said this or I never said that. And I said, oh, these are uh, now. Now here comes the uh, fair weather friends. And she's like, what? What's a fair weather friend? And I, oh, well, you know, when the storm clouds roll out, that's when they leave. But when the fair weather comes back, they, those friends come back. They they're not they're not there for you when you need them. They're just there for you when the weather's great. Oh, okay. And so. It's been quite the experience to watch how we handle this stuff. And circling back, like you said, you know, we're the only army that that kills its wounded. Paul said something like this. I think it's Galatians four or five, but he talks about you're biting and devouring each other. And the actual word he's using there is cannibalism. And he's saying you know you're cannibalizing the body of Christ. There's a whole different Walking Dead kind of picture going on there. That's a whole nother. Piece of this. This has been an issue the whole time, 2,000 years. These issues may keep going, but thankfully we have someone like a Paul who can address this stuff head-on. And I think that's what it takes. It takes a it takes a Danny Silk. It it takes a John Welton who's willing to confront this stuff directly and in the open and authentically and say, Yeah, I, I get it. I used to. You know, like Paul, I used to kill Christians. I was a horrible person. I was transformed and changed. So I know it's possible. A lot of people seem to miss the fact that he's, throughout the whole journey in Acts, he's trying to get himself to Rome and stand before Caesar. And people forget that that was Nero. Like Paul was literally doing everything he could to get himself to stand in front of Nero to give him the gospel. It takes a narcissist to address a narcissist, I think, in some ways. And, and he, he had that love and compassion. to I got to get, get back to him and, and help him. And instead of this hopeless kind of thing of, yeah, we put somebody up on a pedestal, then they blow up their life, and then we put the new person up on the pedestal. And I would much rather, if we have somebody on a pedestal and they blow up their life, actually see them rebuild the trust and then actually find that they're trustworthy see that life restored and rebuilt i'm hopefully uh gonna walk that example out for people
0: you know the whole faith in a lot of ways is built on that recovery and you know i love a comeback story and so that's why i was really happy to see you start making progress and come back through this so it's it's really exciting but what I want to jump back to is I have, I have a really stupid question, and I, it's something that for once I saw this, I've been dying to ask you this if I ever got a chance. So I'm going to ask you my question. <laughs> OK, so me personally in ministry and just general operation, spiritual wise, discernment has always been my thing. I, I'm just really good at it. And I just pick up on stuff. And School of the Sears was explained a lot of that. Cause you're dealing with like a visual discernment. Whereas I don't get visual. I just know things. If that makes sense. I just sense things is the best way I could put it. Okay. Yeah. Reading that book multiple times and just seeing like the different things. And I, it always stood out to me that, okay, John operates in this like a lot. So I know for me, whenever I'm in like a bad place or I'm doing something wrong or being a jerk or anything like that, you could turn off your discernment. And he's like, It starts firing up and you're like, shut up, man. And you're just doing what you do anyway. It's like, or you feel a little tap on your shoulder going, you know, you're not supposed to be doing that. I'm like, shut up, man. I'm doing it anyway. So you get that little rebellion going on. So, you know, that, that discernment gets to you. But I guess the question is when, when I read through the book and I think the story was you like learn to turn it up full blast and adjust it and all that kind of stuff as you were going through this and as the crash was happening and all the stuff was, you know, being confronted, so on and so forth. Did you not discern that? Did you not pick up on any of that? Or did you just kind of suppress it? Or what happened there? I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to know. That's
1: an awesome question. I, I don't think I've had somebody frame it for me that way in other interviews and such. And it's, it's such a good point to bring up because there's such a huge blind spot to what we consider our normal. Growing up in the emotional and mental dysfunction that I had developed in my life. And the environment I had grown up in, I had so many things that I just thought were normal. And so then for me, as far as being spiritual, in a lot of ways, it would be to be over spiritual, to bypass the actual emotional work that I needed to do. And so, gosh, I I think how many people I've met who discern the spirit of Jezebel And yet they are the spirit of Jezebel (laughs) and it's, it's all projection. And there's so often that I was in that same spot of seeing stuff around me or on other people that I think was actually my own glasses that I was seeing through and stuff that I needed to deal with. Now, is that to say all my discernment was off? No, but I think there was a few that uh, would regularly happen and the seeing things was still was still clear like i know that for me there was a lot of of revelation and angelic activity around books and the different books that i would write and yet when you're just writing lots of theology it doesn't mean that you're a good husband or that you've dealt with your insecurities or that you are able to take input from people without throwing up every defense possible, that you're able to speak the truth without being manipulative. So there was there was a huge disconnect between I'm living in my brain, being super mental, super smart, or I'm over-spiritualizing all the time. It's been an ongoing course correction, I think, even now, like I was having a conversation with somebody last night out to dinner and and he was asking me about,
0: you know what
1: does your spiritual life look like now? I said, you know a big a big part of it nowadays is actually meditation and just sitting and connecting with my spirit with the Holy Spirit, praying in the spirit, and just just sitting and being present and it's it's not. Uh, as much activity as it used to be, as much work as it used to be, but I couldn't have meditated a few years ago because I w- my brain was constantly going, and there was there was no inner peace going on there. It was just constant movement and triggers and frustrations. And I got to perform and I got to do things. I have to do things. I don't feel okay inside. Versus, I can actually just sit down and connect and not have my brain all over the place so things have changed quite a lot and i I think part of that journey and and yet that discerning the spirits is still always just as available as as
0: ever so you still operate at that level like from what you wrote in the book or has it changed or what's what's it like now well i'd say it's available i don't
1: often go into that, that same place. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say more when it operates now, it would be if I'm praying for somebody and I'm going to step into the prophetic. Is it happening as consistently as it was in that first 30 days when I got the impartation from the prophet uh, Dennis Kramer? No, that, that, those first 30 days were a level I've actually never paralleled. And that was, I think, a huge wake-up call to what's possible, and really stretched out, you know, my understanding of all that. But now it's it's more like a gift that I stir up and has to be stirred up.
0: For me, with that discernment, it's interesting because I tell people, because you always hear people say, "We well, got to stay in prayer." You got to stay in prayer. You know, it's something I've learned, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, and maybe you could speak to it. But I don't generally quote unquote, pray like you would expect with discernment. I just kind of listen because, you know, God's a little bit of a chatterbox and he'll just kind of keep talking if you listen. And so sometimes with that conversation, I I think maybe I learned that from podcasting. I don't know. I just kind of sit back and just kind of ask a question and just shut up and listen. (laughs) So so I don't know if it's possible to pray via discernment, but that's just kind of how I do it. And it's interesting because I'll just say, God, what's going on here? That's all I got to say. I don't need to say anything beyond that. And he just knows. Right. And I guess what I was kind of curious about why I brought that up was, is that I guess for the last few years, and I guess this would fall into this window where things were happening with you as well. It seems to me that God is kind of cleansing out the church because a lot of stuff's coming to the surface. A lot of people are being outed for improper activities and things. Do you think there's something to that?
1: Yeah, I definitely see the cleansing of the church is is a lot of what's happening. I think it's so much more uh, than just the church and I think that's part of the challenge that even the church hasn't hasn't seen we haven't been aware of what's happening I mean we're talking I think the, the political realm the global realm the corporate realm the church realm I think all of it is is going through a, a global cleanse right now and unfortunately, we, the church, we have got to do it different than those other realms. We are not the realm of the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod. We're the leaven of the kingdom. And so when when a major leader is exposed for, it could be immorality, it could be financial uh, impropriety, it could be many different things, we still have not handled it well. And... I really appreciate Danny Silk wrote uh, his book, Unpunishable, which is to kind of lay a framework for how do you walk with people through a restoration process? And there's really very few, if any books like that. So there's, there's a little bit of a roadmap, but I, I think that I was, I was really shocked that really what I got from the Bulletproof Husband program was a, here's how you repent of these issues as a man so that you can have a healthy marriage, be a healthy business owner, be a healthy leader, lead with integrity, rebuild people's trust, and actually walk this out. And there's there's very few roadmaps out there that are are like that. And so currently, we've kind of had a, You blow up your life and now we bench you for a few years and then we slowly let you rebuild or we put you in some, some podunk little country church out in the middle of nowhere where you might not hurt people again, or even if you do it, we'll be really small. And, you know, just, just weird ways that we've handled stuff. And this stuff has to be brought to the surface and dealt with but we have to actually know how to rebuild trust and how to how to walk out this process and i i i don't see the church having a clear handle on that yet i'm i'm hoping i'm hoping that we we get this this clear path figured out cuz i look around if i think back to uh gosh i think it was it was right around 2016 17 and 18 there were lots of young leaders leader senior pastors in their 30s 20s even 40s that were killing themselves and it was just one after another after another and it was that hopelessness of for many of them they had they had some sort of scandal they had tried to deal with it privately with their team and they had gotten just hopeless And then they they kill themselves. And it's like this is this is not what should be happening inside the church. This is so we are so off course here and we've gotta figure out how to do this. So yeah, I have a big heart for that and I definitely see it as huge on the Lord's agenda for the church.
0: Ministry or not, we're all working on stuff. We got a long way to go. We got a lot of work to do. John, I'm very happy that you've joined us today to share a little bit. Um, thank you so much for being here with us. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're pulling it together and you're working towards the positives. It's, it's very good to see. I've always appreciated the work you've done and, and the classes and the books. So definitely big thank you for that. If someone would like to track down what you're doing or follow your website, social medias, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm
1: very uh, active and interactive on uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook and it Instagram. Podcast is out there now. But the website is probably the best place to find everything. And that's just johnwelton.com, J-O-N Welton.com.
0: And as we conclude our show here, would you please, for maybe our listeners out there, because I'm sure somebody's dealing with this or, you know, somebody's going through something similar, would you mind just doing a quick prayer for our audience and for our situation and uh, take us to an amen and then I will wrap everything up. That's
1: awesome. Would love to. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you are doing in the lives of everybody listening right now, even if it feels like uh all all hell is breaking loose, relationships are are falling apart or finances or whatever else chaos is going on. I know that you're present and you're always present with your people and and you do work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so Father, I just I bless everyone listening and I thank you for their hearts, their lives, the value of everything you've put inside them. And I ask that you would just really bring forth the fruit in their life that's needed. Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen, listeners. Anytime you could check us out on the Dominion Fire three sixty podcast on all the major platforms, always visit our website at Dominionfire.com. Dot com. You could also email us at podcast at Dominion Fire if you have any follow-up questions or anything on that line. For Dr. Professor Intergalactic Minister John Welton <laughs> joining us today, it's been a pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for being here. We're going to continue to crank out more episodes and uh, just wonderful guests, and we thank you for being here with us. As we always say here at our ministry, boom goes Yeshua, and we'll see you guys next time.